Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today Matt McClelland, who is the innovation strategist for Covenant Transport Services. And in this role, Matt has direct line to the president of Covenant Transport Services. And it's a way for the company to really be thinking about strategic topics. And Matt is in this role because he has a strategic mind. And so today we're going to talk about innovation and we're going to talk a little bit about sustainability as well, because that's a big topic. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. As I've said, Matt, I really like your title. You have a very unconventional role in a company, but it's something that's so needed because when you talk about things like innovation, and of course, you're the innovation strategist, and they say that one of the best ways to think strategically is to consider trends and to think about how those trends you know, affect your company and your industry. But then you, you can't just think about it. You've got to come up with a strategy to be able to implement it. So would you mind telling me just a little bit about your job? Sure, absolutely. So I, I started with Covenant about three years ago. And, and actually, Matt, I had gotten out of logistics altogether. I'm roughly 50 years old. I've been in IT for a while. I've mostly worked for logistics and transportation companies. But Covenant called me and said, hey, we'd like to talk to you. And to make a long story short, I was offered a job they've never had before. Their board of directors and their leadership felt strongly that so much was happening in our industry. And and really, we'll just say we're we're a trucking company, but we're also a warehousing company. We're, We're deep inside of all aspects of the supply chain. Because it was an industry that I knew, it was an industry that I really enjoyed. They made a really a great offer. My job, Matt, is to get up, go to work, and to not have any day-to-day responsibilities, but to think about the future. And so, you know, there's so much going on in our space right now. And everybody else at the company, they come to work and they think about keeping the trucks filled, keeping the warehouses filled. They have sales responsibilities. They have responsibilities, keeping trucks on the road, keeping them filled, recruiting, hiring, IT problems, but everybody's too busy to really think about the future. I get to start every day doing everything from reading the Wall Street Journal to transport topics to scrolling through Twitter feeds to looking at freight waves to networking with my competitors, I guess, for lack of a better word. You know, rising tide floats all boats. You've heard the expression before. And so I have contacts at other companies that do exactly what we do. And we're constantly sort of bouncing ideas back and forth. I get to spend a lot of time looking at things like battery electric technology or the decarbonization of freight. I get to think about and look at and talk to autonomous truck startups or to two kids out of Stanford, just to give you an example that, you know, a year ago I met at a, at a trade show event that have an idea that just got uh, $20 million in funding. Um, and they didn't know anything about logistics a year ago. And now they know almost as much as I do, it seems like. And so I have a long runway to think about the future and to bring some of those best ideas directly to corporate leadership for consideration. 
you know, I give credit to whoever came up with the idea of hiring you for this job. It seems like something, uh, and as you say, it's not a typical job, but it seems like something every company needs to some degree. But I'd like to talk to you just to dig in a little bit. You mentioned a long list of things. I've been really interested in this topic of hydrogen fuel cells versus electric battery kind of approaches. And, you know, it's funny. I will, I find myself reading something, I think, oh, hydrogen fuel cells, that's the way to go. And then I read something else like, well, there's, there's a lot of trade-offs there. And then you read something on batteries and, you know, I imagine there's multiple solutions to this problem, but what are your thoughts on it? Yeah. Wow. We could talk a long time about that, Matt, but, you know, generally speaking, you know, our industry, the trucking industry, and, you know, we're not the biggest uh, trucking company. We have about 2,700 trucks on the road. Our friends right there in your neck of the woods, J.B. Hunt, they have significantly more than that. But as an industry, we put a lot of carbon in the air and we do a lot of polluting. And so when you think about what I like to call the decarbonization of freight, it's the idea that that all of us need to do a better job at figuring out alternatives to diesel fuel. Diesel is dirty. Um, It is really the ultimate fuel cell, right? It's portable. It's inexpensive. Um, you can move it around, um, which is why you have fuel stations all over the country. It's, it's really, in fact, the, the, first, the first vehicles in our country were electric cars that just we didn't have battery technology that would make them go more than, you know, a block and a half before they ran out of energy, which is why ultimately gasoline or petroleum went out as the ultimate fuel cell. But as a group, we pollute a lot. And I think anybody, Matt, out there listening to the podcast will have seen Gavin Newsom in California, who has said that by 2035, all cars that are sold need to be basically non-fuel based, battery electric, hydrogen powered. We have people in your backyard like Walmart, they're making big initiatives to have a X percentage of their fleet. I think it's 60% carbon neutral by 2040. All companies are starting to make some gestures here. And you know we're certainly part of that. When you look at the technologies that are available today in the market that we're in, the long haul market, driving for 500, 600, 700 miles in between stops, your options are kind of limited. You mentioned hydrogen. Hydrogen is a great solution. But like you said, there's an upside and downside. It's very clean on the upside. It's very expensive to produce on the on the downside. A hydrogen truck, as you know, is is an electric truck. It's just it has a smaller battery and the energy is kind of produced on demand. We're also looking at battery electric. But, you know, right now, you know, the biggest problem for those of us in the long haul market is there's no charging stations. You know, there's I think if you look at the average truck stop in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska, if you had 10 trucks charging up, you'd probably brown out the town because there's just not enough electricity in the grid. So there are a lot of changes that are going to have to happen before we see this be more mainstream. But I think where you're going to see the first real impact are UPS, FedEx, people driving under 100 miles a day, people doing last mile delivery, people that are not in class eight trucks, class eight for those of your listeners that are not in the know, it's the largest truck. It's the 53-foot trailers and the, you know, the big semis that people kind of see driving down the road. I cannot wait until my UPS driver pulls up an electric truck one day. I look forward to the day. So there's so much going on in that space. It's an area that I get a lot of interest in when our customers ask us, 
What's the biggest thing you see, the biggest thing that potentially is going to be disruptive? I would have to say the area that we're talking about right now. Of course, you know, there's innovation that occurs in the technologies, hydrogen fuel cells, batteries. There's innovation that occurs in how to apply it to the delivery vehicles and so forth. But innovation in general is really an interesting topic. And I know you have a model that you talk about where you look at continuous improvement is about doing the same things better. Innovation is about doing new things. And disruption is about making things that make the old things obsolete. You must have been looking at my LinkedIn page. You bet. That's how I did it. (laughs) So when you think about hydrogen fuel cells and battery uh, powered electric vehicles and so forth, you know, there is, like like I said, there's innovation in the technologies themselves, but there's also got to be a lot of innovation in how they're actually implemented from a practical perspective. And then your model made me think about it from a disruption perspective, because certainly it's going to have an impact on combustion engines and so forth, but how much of an impact it has is probably, it's probably a portfolio, right? There's probably still going to be some vehicles that are traditional gas-powered motors, and there's some that are going to be hydrogen fuel cells, and there's some that are going to be battery electric. So the disruption is going to occur for sure, but it's a degree to which, you know, I kind of think of this as being somewhere between innovation and disruption, but I'm not sure about that. What What are your thoughts on that? Gosh, so many thoughts there. Um, so you talked about a slide, and I know this is a podcast, and uh, it's hard to sort of be visual in a podcast. But, um, you know, if you look at disruption on the, the right-hand side of the spectrum and continuous improvement on the other end, you know, I think that customers always expect us to get better, right? We always expect for the our new version of the iPhone or the Android to get a little bit better, or Taco Bell to come out with a new you know, form of combining the same 12 ingredients together in a different way. That's continuous improvement. On the other end, when you have disruption, those are what changing the way markets work. Examples of that are, you know, now nobody buys CDs anymore. They download music. They subscribe to Spotify or Apple Music or some of these other services. And so, um, or maybe you can think about, you know, um, you know, Airbnb, you know, the way that we do um, vacation rentals now, you know, we don't, you know, the idea of not staying in hotels, but staying in people's homes, you know, those are disruptions. And so here in the middle, right, innovation in this space, especially as it relates to some of the technologies you've talked about, the evolution from a diesel truck to an electric truck is is not really all that complicated. The first electric trucks are going to be trucks that are built on the same chassis that just, you know, instead of an engine, it has a giant battery pack. And instead of axles, it has electric motors. And so we're going to start seeing implementations of those electric trucks. We're already seeing it in California and states that are very progressive. But, you know, these types of things we're going to see on the road in the next couple of years. What's really sort of edgy and more disruptive are some of these technologies. Hydrogen, in my opinion, is probably a little bit more disruptive than something like pure battery electric, just because the production of fuel is going to be something that's so different from the way the nation has used to procuring fuel, both for consumer cars and for trucks. So, And then, of course, real disruption in freight delivery is going to be when we actually figure out a way to do it on something other than a truck, right? Something like 3D printers, close 
to where a product is actually going to be consumed, where instead of making the product, shipping the product by boat, putting it on a truck, delivering it to a distribution center, putting it on a shelf, and then moving it again, ultimately into the hand of the consumer, you actually produce the product maybe within a mile of where that customer lives. I mean, that's really going to be what disruption is. The invention of the shipping container in the early 50s was probably one of the most disruptive things that supply chain had ever seen. And it's so simple, right? It was just a standardized crate with ways to stack them on top of each other. And since then, we've had a lot of innovations. But right now, we're really starting to see this is an exciting time to be in this industry because there is so much going on. I know you've inter- you're interviewing me on your podcast, but I'd almost like to throw it out to you. You know, I mean, you, you get to see so much in your role. I, I agree. And I think that you see it in technology, like we've been talking about, but also in processes. I think COVID allowed for lots of experimentation with new processes. One thing that I think about is omnichannel retail. Players like Walmart were already making a lot of progress on things like pickup, but COVID caused everyone to really jump ahead on that, right? I don't know how many years ahead we are now because of this one year of COVID. So you have a lot of innovation in how to execute things like pickup, delivery to home, and how do you manage the logistics and supply chain of a store when it's not just for products that people are coming and picking up, but they're ordering online, picking up, having it delivered to their home or delivered into their home, right? Those processes change how a distribution center works, which affects transportation. But the one I think that is really going to have a big effect is more on the software side. And that is traditionally most of our solutions, planning, and execution solutions in supply chain um, have been very much dependent on looking at historical data and coming up with a plan and then executing against that. So for example, inventory management solutions, trying to forecast what demand will be in the future, trying to forecast how much uncertainty there is around that demand, which then plays into how much safety stock you should have. And similarly, looking at historical lead times, historical lead time uncertainty, then they incorporate all of that in to try to figure out when orders should be placed and for how much. This is one of those things that people don't talk about in supply chain, but it affects transportation, it affects warehousing, it affects stockouts on the shelf. But this this didn't work during COVID. And actually it was becoming less effective over the years because things are so dynamic. Demand is highly uncertain. Product life cycles in some cases are very shorter. They're, they have uh, different demand characteristics. I think that the new solutions that are going to replace the old planning solutions will be more empirically based and kind of like experiments. In other words, you might use a planning tool to set your initial order up to level or reorder level or order quantity. But then as you start executing going forward, the solution would look at it as a, a real-time experiment where you're constantly testing hypotheses 
by looking at the changes in transportation costs, inventory costs, stockout costs, et cetera, service levels, and then adjusting the parameters based on what you're actually observing. Another problem that that overcomes is this notion of execution, because all those planning models that we see assume execution is done well. But as we know, things don't always get executed, whether it's in transportation or warehousing or network design or forecasting or inventory management. All those things have that weak link. You know what's interesting about that? Something happened to me last week that has never happened before in all of the thousands of orders that I have made from Amazon, me and my family have made over the last, I don't know what, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I got something in my box that I didn't order. And I looked at this, it was this glass bluebird. In fact, it's sitting here on my desk. I wish you could see it. I looked at this thing. It was like, you know, I got my order and had all this stuff in. I'm like, what is this? And it was the first time they ever messed up. And I just thought about that for a minute because that's really never happened before. I, I ordered something from another vendor a few weeks ago that the item never showed up. The UPS tracking number said that it was in Chattanooga where I live but nobody could find it. And, you know, eventually they, you know, talk about visibility, product visibility, which is another sort of interesting thing to sort of talk about as it relates to technology. But it was the first time in a long time when something just didn't make it here. And, you know, you think about COVID and how shipping volumes are through the roof because people don't want to shop. But my personal experience as an individual consumer, it generally works pretty well. I agree with you. It is hard to demand and forecast. And, you know, the Suez Canal gets blocked and then all of a sudden, the supply chain gets disruptive and the pizza restaurant can't get their secret ingredient and, you know, they have to pivot and start making something else. What actually happened here in Chattanooga a few weeks ago. But there's more parts of this that do work than don't work. What really another thing that sort of scares me as a consumer is I was just out in Wyoming with my son on spring break. I'm skiing and all of a sudden in the social media feeds that I get all these products and goods related to what I'm doing start showing up. <laughs> restaurants, places to eat, things to buy, skis to look at. And you've got technology that's driving my consumer behavior, what I choose to buy, what I choose to put into my shopping cart. I think that is also an area that's really interesting right now. What I choose to purchase is different now because technology is pushing things in my direction, sometimes subtly and sometimes much more direct. My son, who's 15, he got we got an old car the other day that had a, a manual crank window, right? It wasn't powered windows. And he looked at it, he said, Dad, what's that? <laughs> I said, What do you mean? And he said, What's that thing? I was like, that's what makes the window go up and down. And he just laughed at me. He's like, No, it doesn't. I said, No, try it out. And he took him a minute to figure out. And eventually he got it to work. Our children will never know what it's like not to order something and have it show up in two days. <laughs> It's a really interesting time to be alive and be in the supply chain business and understand how things work at all levels. Absolutely. You know, we've been talking about innovation in technology, innovation in logistics, but probably one of the biggest areas of change that we're facing is work. What are you all thinking in terms of the future of work? So I just did a presentation to our board of directors um, a few weeks ago, the five biggest trends that I felt like we needed to be on top of. I talked about some of the things you and I have already spoken about, about the decarbonization of freight. I talked about autonomous vehicles. 
But one of the things I talked about was the future of work. Now, I know that when your listeners are thinking like, oh, he's talking about working from home. And, and yes, but it's really bigger than that. I'm not talking about living in Little Rock, Arkansas and, and working at home in my office is a few miles away. I'm talking about, you know, working for a company in Little Rock, Arkansas. And now that COVID has proven that we can do our jobs remotely, at least if you're kind of in that white collar world, you can move to another state, you can move to another country. You know, Matt, I am working on our company's first corporate social responsibility report, and I needed a designer. And I'm really big into the van life movement, camping outdoors, that kind of thing. There's this whole group of people called digital nomads. They travel around in vans and RVs. And I follow a guy and his wife who live in an RV or live in a van, and he's a graphic designer. And I knew he did that. And so I just reached out to him on his YouTube page. I sent him a message and said, hey, I work for a publicly traded company and I need a designer. I'd like to see an example of your work. And to make a long story short, that guy is helping me now write our first corporate social responsibility report. He's on YouTube and Instagram. They have a pretty decent following, but he's a digital nomad. But the future of work is really interesting because it's about working remotely. And, you know, some of the things that we did in our company when we really didn't have any idea how long this was going to last was we started doing things like telling people these two hours that you lost every day in a commute, you should exercise. You should be your coach on your kid's baseball team. You should spend that time being more productive in other areas. And, and our experience has been fantastic. Now, we're you have to sort of figure out pretty quickly, for example, measuring performance is very different. I think that one of the things that has been a real impact to us is our travel costs have dropped significantly, trade shows, customer visits. And so we've actually seen a little bit of bump in some of our budgets because of this. So I think the future of work, and I think that your students that might be listening to this podcast, it might be one of those scenarios where the idea of actually living in the same town where you have your first job is just not anything that's really all that important. It's harder to do mentorship. You know, it's harder to kind of have some of those interactions and meetings, you know, remotely. But I think that I think it's going to be a different world as a result of all this. Matt, I've heard you talk about corporate social responsibility. It's a somewhat nebulous topic, but everyone's interested in it right now. What is your company doing with respect to CSR? So, I think companies sometimes get a bad rap because the assumption is it's all about the bottom line and they're just trying to be profitable. The more our companies start appealing back to layers and looking that those those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. And a good rock solid CSR plan that has been kind of vetted from the top and pushed down across the entire organization will tell you that you can be thoughtful and sensitive to the environment. You know, not all companies are the same. So for example, a trucking company like us, we're going to have a lot of impact on the environment. We're putting a lot of effort into the sustainability piece of it. So it's the environment, the community, and your people. So those are the three legs that ours is built on. And so people, you think about culture, you think about diversity and inclusion, you think about volunteerism and things that your company can get involved with. What's interesting, Matt, is when you look at CSR and you look at the reasons why you do it, sometimes 
people will criticize you because they say, well, you're only doing it to check a box. You're only doing it because it's good marketing. You're only doing it because you think customers want you to go down that path. And for some people, that's probably the motivation behind it. For us, ever since we were founded in 1986, we've been very passionate about giving. We've been very passionate about having our employees be connected to the community. So for us, it's always been a part of who we are. We may not have always called it corporate social responsibility, Matt, but it's something that we always did. And so, you know, most companies that I come across have elements of of CSR already baked into the way they do business. They just don't necessarily call it that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So if you watch our website over the next couple of months, we'll be producing our first version of it. And it basically explains kind of what we think it is and how it's part of who we are as a culture. We're starting to have customers contact us directly and be willing to pay more money if we can step up and help them provide things that also benefit their CSR plans. I'll give you an example. We've got a large customer right now. They're really encouraging us to introduce a battery electric truck into the duty cycle, into the project that we have with them. And they're willing to pay the premium in order to offset that cost. That's something we've never seen before. These are things that are important to customers. It's important to their customers. For me personally, as somebody that's very much into the environment and the outdoors, it's something that's just very near and dear to my heart. My role will be changing pretty soon. I can't really talk much about it because it hasn't happened yet, but there'll be some formal sustainability roles and responsibilities in the job that I have in, in providing our leadership with new ideas and things that we can be doing that we're not doing today. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C podcast, and now Be Epic. Be Epic.